No saying video games. No, no, no saying. Yeah, I can't get even close to saying video games. Hey, everybody. Hello. <gasps> Welcome to the Actual Garbage Podcast. Was that exciting, what are you laughing Ryan? At, Ryan? Oh, I huh? thought, am I hosting this one? Um, <laughs> Episode 13, 14, or 15. Right, you are, Ryan. All right. Fucking hell. Anyway. <laughs> David's blowing us out here today. Yeah, no, this uh, this is not good. I'm trying to use a mixer that probably is too cheap for this particular application, but until I get a more expensive one in, and hopefully that one fucking does the same job, uh, you're just going to have to put up with me blowing this out a little bit. In the meantime, Ryan Riley. To Thanks your, for being part of the show. To your left. To my left. Yes. Thanks. To no my, one's left. No one's left. Nicole Paddock. Hello, hello. Back at it again for yes, the second du- time today, Double header. Yeah. Just got done hot off the 5.7, and now we're here to talk about a movie that is kind of like the 5.7. But not really at all. In that it is a film. Well... I mean, I guess you could compare them in that sense. I had some kind of weird, like, esoteric stretch that I was going to try and make a connection to, and that was earlier in the day, and I, I forgot it. If, if I think about it, I'll... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that idea got worse the more you thought about it? You probably, I probably just, you know, filed it away and was like, yeah, this is really, this is really a stretch. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, we're talking about A Trip to the Moon, which, by Ryan's estimation, and I'll take him at his word on this, is the first film that anybody cares about. Absolutely. Yeah. It is a narrative in a filmic format. There are actors. And I don't know. It's a lot of fun. I I saw it for the first time yesterday, which, you know, just like every other movie we do, I don't do my homework early enough to uh, really let it sink in. But You did pick this film. I did. That had no bearing on when I watched it, though. Um, I enjoyed it quite a bit just to get the review-ish side out of it. It is only 12 minutes, so it's worth your time as a uh, touchstone of film history to just watch it at some point. But even even outside of sort of the historical museum quality thing of just understanding where we come from, it's fun to watch, especially in an internet era of that kind of schlock that the movie gets up to, which granted, they had to do by necessity and we sort of do intentionally now. But I think... The, the current crop of millennial kids, like me, can appreciate what they have going on, what they're trying to achieve with that oh, yes, movie. it's fun. It's whimsical. Like you said, Extremely. It, you know, it's one of the earliest documented movies that we have that has a, a actual story narrative. Um, so, so back before, you know, now the reason, the reason Trip to the Moon is the one that we talk about is because it's one of the few from this era that is that's left that we can actually watch because uh, film film doesn't hold up well over time. So most of the film that was, you know, that had something on it that was watchable back in, you know, 1901, 1902, most of that film is not around anymore. It's, uh, you know, fell apart, decomposed, is unwatchable. Um, and this one, through a lot of painstaking work and uh a lot of uh, love within the cinematic community. This one has been able to... Uh, Lobster Film Studios. Yes, Lobster Film Studios did an excellent job of, of putting together both a, a black and white and a colored version of this film in its entirety. Yeah, especially films before World War One never really had the you know the expectation that they were going to be saved, like yeah. that they were doing something important. It became, because this, 
you know, his film evolves from around 1890, mid-1890s mid or so up until 1902-1903 when this film is made and released. You know, films were not even projected initially. They had the little videoscope. The yeah, ideas. you watched them in a little viewer box. Yeah, one at a time. You'd like walk in and, and put they were, your eyes they to were it. about a minute long. They were just one sequence of like someone dancing or a horse going across the street. Um, yeah, even for novelty's sake as well, they would show like, you know, a, a sunrise or, you know, something that norm normally other people wouldn't see. Like, uh, for example, there's a film of the Taj Mahal that's like, yeah. like 12 seconds long, but that anyone could have, you know, seen a photograph of this or they would have even experienced a photograph. Photography now is so, I guess, since the 1850s or so is a long time. Uh, uh, would have, many people would have been exposed to that already. But then the idea of seeing something in motion uh, it's just uh, it's considered a parlor trick, and it's also kind of interesting because uh, George Melier, who uh, of course made a, a Journey to the Moon, uh, he is of course himself uh, interested in the idea of magicianry, in the in the idea of trickery. Yes. Yeah, he was ba a magician. Yes, yeah. uh, background in theater was a magician. He saw film as a way to enhance his parlor trick, so to speak. So, um, and I believe it was him, but he had a f you know he had. He had a camera, and it was running, and it stopped. And then he got it fixed up, and then it started running again. So then when he went back and watched the film, he realized in that time the camera had stopped. You know, time had passed, and he could use basically the edit. This was the very first, you know, time anyone had ever had the concept of the, the edit in there. But he realized that he could, you know, match up, uh, you know, the film and, and have a... a chunk of time that you know passed and the story keep moving forward and that was that was like a new idea at the time and he used this to build narratives in you know build small films about 12 minutes long like trip to the moon is where you actually had a story and not just a stationary camera filming you know one event from start to finish over the course of one or two minutes yeah seemingly like filming moments or so yeah. there's, a, there's a real famous you know beginning idea that uh, Edison put out wasn't an idea. It was a beginning uh, film that Edison put out called The Kiss, where it was just two, you know, two people, two lovers, you know, in an embrace, and we can't, of course, hear what they're saying, and they're talking to each other. But I think, you know, Journey to the Moon, of course, is this is all before as well. They had any kind of uh, uh, any kind of uh, dialogue boxes that they yes. would intersperse so when characters are speaking to each other. There's no way to tell exactly what they're saying. And what they kind of jumped off of from this was that if there was conversation happening between the two characters that they felt they needed, needed to communicate specific dialogue, they would actually just intersperse a, a, a card that actually had what they were saying between them on it. And they don't, you know, they, they still hadn't, hadn't gotten there yet, uh, especially with the idea of editing, as we see this yeah. kind of birth of editing. It's also interesting that, you know, uh, uh, Journey to the Moon also has the uh, cuts in the edit are almost... Uh, we see a scene and then a cut, and it, you know, like in a story, it says, and then mm -hmm. such and such happened, and then such and such happened. Yep. So every time we see a cut and a, and a cut, but we don't, I mean, edits also really take us inward. They don't, uh, they move us stationary from scene to scene yes. to scene, and nothing really moves in it. And we talked before about the idea of stationary, uh, of the idea of the stationary camera, but I think what's also important here is that. It's also the story does not have any sort of movement beyond the kind of you know energy that is moving or propelling this narrative forward. There's no flashbacks yet. I mean, film actually invents flashbacks. There's no <laughs> flashbacks in Shakespeare or anything like that. And there's also and only rarely in books. And absolutely. frankly, the use of flashbacks in books is probably a novelty of the film era using it first. I would imagine because I'm thinking. I mean, I don't have a whole lot of fiction drawn. For this comparison, but I'm not thinking of any examples. Uh, no, I couldn't. I couldn't either. 
I mean, especially, well, I don't know, you get Proust around this time period, and, and but his book is kind of revolutionary, or his style is revolutionary in the yeah, sense that Proust it is about a, memory. Yeah, Proust was a neuroscientist. He wasn't trying, <laughs> he wasn't trying to invent the flashback. He was basically, it was an exercise in the fact that memory is fallible, and we will never know where that mole on Madeline's face was. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so... But I, I really like, you know, I really like film. I mean, David, had you ever seen any uh, sh- silent films before this one? Um, if I have, I don't remember them. <laughs> have you seen any, like, Charlie Chaplin films or... No, that's part, of the re- that's part of the reason we're doing all this shit is to force me to actually watch some of these things. Because everybody tells me, I mean, even, even in a source that could arguably be considered objective, mm-hmm. like Wikipedia, people talk about silent films hitting their peak after talkies already existed. Like, people talk about silent films still being created long after they figured out they solved the dialogue problem and, like, the well, golden because, era of it. That's because the talkies were rough. Like, so as, as, as people were developing, and I don't, silent film is not quite my area. I'm not a, a, a total expert on this one. But, you know, film had been developing, uh, you know, in the silent era, and they were making big, huge, amazing productions. But then when they had the technology to do sound, as you're learning with this podcast, sound is finicky, there's problems, and the original talkie movies, like, just because they had dialogue didn't necessarily make them better because they were fighting with a lot of the issues it took to get the sound in the thing. Um, You know, and I brought some of this up uh, earlier when we were chatting, but, you know, cameras are very loud, so they had to figure out how they could have the camera in the room and have the actors doing dialogue. They had to figure out how to mic stuff before, you know, they were very good at doing any of this. And 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 adding the voice to the film was difficult. So the talkie movies initially weren't the best films. You know, silent films had already been, you know, they had a process, they were, you know, moving, they had some momentum, they were getting right. really good at them by the time they got this new talkie technology. And it took a while for the talkie technology to catch up. Well, and also that you know, I think what is, what makes films so powerful to me, at least, is the idea of visual storytelling. I mean, these yeah. are, these are telling I, these are telling stories through visuals alone. And Voyage to the Moon, it is all visuals. There is you know the music was never guaranteed to be there, and in a sense and doesn't need to be, even though the versions that we can see now on YouTube or on you know Amazon or whatever. Or it's it's worth mentioning if you've never watched this before. If you look at the YouTube versions of this, or even the Amazon versions, none of those. Are, None of those are canonical. Yeah, that is not original. Yeah, there is, and everyone takes some degree of artistic license with the way that that goes, and uh, it swings pretty strongly between the versions. I recommend, since you may as well watch the thing twice while you're sitting down, watch two different versions. Find two different takes on what this should sound like instead of just going with any particular one, because I think that dramatically influences the look and feel of the movie. And this would have been historically accurate, too, because the theaters at the time would have gotten to pick the soundtrack that they played while this movie was going on. So if they had a guy on a piano, he would be playing the piano in the front of the theater, where if, you know, if they were playing it at George Millet's theater, he may have, you know, had like his own particular soundtrack that he wanted to go with it. So there would have been this level of interpretation even at the time the movie came out. Well, that's what I think is so fascinating about this period as well is that nobody knows what to do. Yeah. Like there's there's no idea, there's no conventions. I mean, there really is this kind of unabashed uh, experimentation going on. And I think there's just a certain amount of energy that goes into these films because when you watch Voyage to the Moon, I mean, take a look at what it would take to accomplish something like that today. 
mean, the amount of work, the amount of effort that goes into something, this thing is more detailed, more composed, more thought out than many YouTube videos where the comparative barrier, to, you know, the, the time barrier, the effort barrier to create something that detailed, even through like a flash animation, people simply don't take the time to do, yeah. even, though the, even though it wouldn't be as nearly as much work to do something like that. It's just, you know, there is a kind of, you know, a passion and experimentation yeah, these, and idea are, that the rules aren't, aren't these defined These are not yet. an exercise in minimalism either. I mean, this, this, this thing is dense. Every it's single scene is packed in this. And that's what makes it really fun. Like there is a lot of creativity, like flowing in and out through the sets, yeah. through the costuming, through, um, you know, just like the use of special effects and how they can, you know, incorporate them into the story. Like, there's yeah. a lot going on in this 12 minutes. Oh, it seems it seems at many points that Millier wants to do a whole lot more than he can in 12 minutes, the way that he stuffs different things. Yeah. I, the number of special effects, again, he's a magician, so I can understand that he probably has some aesthetic appreciation of hitting something and it vanishing in a puff of smoke. Like, I, that's insanely cliche, but... At the time, as a parlor trick, pretty damn good parlor trick. Um, you know, but then once again, a special effect though, something yeah. that that you couldn't make rea in reality happen. Yeah, he Someone couldn't actually do that in, yeah. in any real trick he was doing. Right, and that he brings all of these into it, and there's just there's just such an energy and a vibrancy that comes from this time period as well, where it's kind of funny that there's oftentimes this remark made about 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 film during this time period that it isn't until really we move forward into the uh, 1910s or so. I think even if you might be able to find some examples of films, you know, before World War I. I was going to say, are you talking post? Yeah, I'm talking pre-World War I, pre -World I think, War. as we're okay. still trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah. Uh, you well, know, you don't have a whole lot of pre-World War One after this. Well, you get, I mean, it's surprising by, you know, by the time Hollywood starts making films, Never I think mind, I'm lying. It's no, uh, okay. I, yeah. For some reason, I thought World War One was... 1905. 1914, 1918. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're a little yeah. later than that. Dan, Dan Carlin would be so upset with you right now. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just teasing. It's but he's, Armageddon. Yeah, he's, uh, but he's, um, but by the time I think Hollywood really gets cranking movies out by the 1910s, 19, 1912 or so, I mean, you already have movies that are now extensively longer, yes. right? That are essentially small set pieces where they link, you know, small little voyage to the moons where they link them together in a larger narrative. Oh, they're, they're using they're the, creating the, the, epics by that Yeah, they're, they're using yeah. dialogue cards to link ideas together. They've also, you, you talked about before, and this is what I wanted to kind of get to also, which is that when you watch Voyage to the Moon, the camera is essentially the same position every time. It looks like we are watching a play being filmed. And by this time, it's interesting to note as well that the camera seems to be more fascinated with the scenery rather than the actors involved in the scenery. And it becomes the idea that the scenery tells the story rather than the, and the actors move through the scenery to tell that story. Mm -hmm. by, the, by, you know, as silent film begins to move forward, they realize that, you know, the way the camera can move in and, as you said, do a close-up. Yeah, there were no close-ups anywhere yeah, in this movie. Yeah, that hadn't really been invented yet. Yeah, no. <laughs> I think there's, there's one film uh, where a, a young child is, they're, 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 there's a scene, and once again, in a room, and you see most of the room. And this young child is holding a kitten, and she's going to feed the kitten. And then the camera zooms in to focus on the detail of her feeding the kitten. And in this sense, we see this first instance of a kind of close-up. And it really transitions later on to where the idea that the actors can tell the story more than the scene or the setting itself. And this is, once again, visually, they have no other way to do this than the performance themselves. And that's where you get this almost vaudevillian performance of people, you know, jumping around and yeah. these really exaggerated, exaggerated movements. You also mentioned as well that the characters and even the human characters, right? The, the explorers in Voyage to the Moon are dressed up in masks and heavy makeup to exaggerate features, yep. right? This is, you know, this They're is- They're dressed a, up like sideshow characters in a play. Absolutely. Yeah. This is like 
a play going back to like ancient Greece, you know, yeah. Herodotus, where they would have these kinds of masks to represent these kind of figures. It, it isn't until like two or three years later where that is all discarded and the theater is left behind and film begins to come into its own as a storytelling medium. And this, I think, going back and looking at it and seeing where we come from based on this, we see some modern elements, we see some older elements within it. I think that's what can make this so fascinating as well. It's not just an exercise in nostalgia or look how far we've come. I think I think there are inherent elements that are within this that are interesting to look at. Sure. No, it is. I mean, even, like I said, watching it now, like, you can see the creative process, and it's actually really fun to watch, you know, because there's just so much... There's so much packed into every scene, and um, we've learned a lot more about science, and we've, you know, we've actually made it to the moon, but there's there's some really cute, like, you know, prescient little little uh, areas that they cover, you know, like, uh, obviously you can't get a spaceship off the moon by pulling it off the side. Yes. Um, but, you know, our lunar landers land in the ocean and get towed back to land, and yep. that's how, uh, that's how they get towed back to, to town, and that... So prescient. Yeah, yeah, you know, so so for as much as he had to make up because this was science fiction at the time, you know, he did a good job of mixing it up, and he, he some of these elements are are still, like, very relatable. It's not like you're watching it and you're like, oh, my God, these people are totally ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> he, he actually thought about this, and mm-hmm. given the scientific knowledge they had at the time and the science fiction that was available at the time, he did a really good job of... of uh, you know, putting together about as plausible a moon story as yes. you could get in 1902. Absolutely. <laughs> I, do, I do. In the end scene, not necessarily pulling it out of the water, but the end scene of the movie where they're celebrating, that is particularly filmic to me in a way that I... And we don't do it as much in present movies because we do a fade out. And this this comes back to the close-up shot mm-hmm. not existing in this movie. That final scene where they celebrate and everybody gets a sick gold moon badge. Yes. And they have the dumb science statue with the guy with giant hands pointing like nobody's been. That scene is celebratory in a way that makes it feel like they hadn't figured out how to make it feel like someone accomplished something. Like they wanted wanted the attitude of everyone being proud of the accomplishment, but they didn't understand intimacy at this point <laughs> so they had to use pomp and circumstance yeah. and to some extent that's probably that's probably a result of being from 1902 just to bring it into a historical context which is important for a film like this um nationalism on the rise at the time yes like, like yes. The, the idea of having a parade for something like this is completely realistic in the time and you'll note in all about. of the pomp and circumstance scenes there is the french flag though in the colored version um it is colored as the spanish flag and that's because the colored print that they found was they think colored in spain because they found the print in spain but there's definitely a nationalistic feel yeah. um, in the you know the more public gathering scenes. It's the the exuberance is unique. I think that more than anything separates it from modern film because there is the moving picture. What it really allowed us to do, at least the way that most directors see it, even even independent film, is that it gives you an intimacy. It gives you a view into the mind that this movie does not have. This movie is entirely outside of the minds of the people going... You don't you don't understand the thought process that the protagonist, who happens to be Millier himself, um, goes through. He's a man on a mission, but that's about the extent of it. He's still a character in a way that films sort of abandoned. I mean, I don't know when that specifically, when that started happening, 
Is there a specific time when they started to... Um, I don't know if I could pinpoint that When one. actors started to actually try to act like real people that you could relate that, to? That really didn't happen until after talkies got going because everything was very overacted you know, like you were saying, expressive with big movements and more vaudevillian with the heavier makeup. I mean, stuff was, in general, that was kind of like the acting style because you still had to get across your idea without having, you know, dialogues and close-ups and a lot of, like, intimate moments in film. Yeah, I I think that they definitely tried to do that. You know, you you have this... And I think it's in modern times, the Charlie Chaplin film in modern times where he, the, the, that would have been the thirties. No, this is, this is mid twenties or so. 20s? Yeah. I think okay. the early okay. mid, mid to late twenties or so. But it, once again, by that time you talked before about the peak of silent film occurring after sound got incorporated. I mean, they'd really had kind of mastered a lot of these, a lot of these internal ways of, you know, demonstrating motivation and the emotional effects of being acted out on top on the screen. Uh, you can look at some older films like Intolerance, which is a which is a massive, massive silent film. I think it's almost three hours as long as well. Yes, and it so has it's right up there with Birth of a Nation. Yeah, it's almost like it's a, it's like you know three or four stories inter, interspersed within each other. It's it's the uh, tw- it's the the uh, twenty one grams of its yes, day, if yes. you will. And I think that like you get, which you get a, you get the complexity with which the story the the writers and directors are trying to tell but in modern times i think i believe it is where the uh his love interest is blind and charlie chaplin's character goes through all of these trails uh, you know tr- uh, tr- trials and tribulations to get the money to have her do a surgery that fix that that fixes her eyesight and the way the film ends and resolves on this issue of her finally getting her surgery and being able to see and then encountering the very person who got was able to achieve this for her it hangs it almost on an on an ambiguous idea and it it clicks in with the sense of like what love is or what or no how anger or heroism it can you know bring these kinds of details in and that's what i think you know charlie chaplin while it is very overacted and he is a comedian at the same time when that stops then you can see the kind of human intimacy that kind of comes from this right the little tramp character that he want you know waddles around with yeah. and does ex- exaggerated hilarious things with suddenly when that stops and he is looking at this woman who can now see him for the first time, you get this sense of intimacy that only exists due to the contrast of the kind of hyperbole that the the Little Tramp character exists through Charlie Chaplin. And once again, this is all, I mean, part of what makes this era film, if you, if, listeners, if you've never seen a Charlie Chaplin film or my favorite, my Buster Keaton films, watch these things and try to see and, and we'll understand, yeah, and understand that, you know, there is, there is some very, very tried and true methods of what of the films you're watching that these guys developed and built on their own, and especially Buster Keaton. Uh, I'll go off. I'll hit I'll, I'll hit a little tangent on Buster Keaton later. But with this, I mean, why? How can we kind of understand these things today? I mean, we've got to understand that most of the modern population, you know, not only do they not watch movies that were made before they were born. But they rarely even go back to films, you know, of like the fifties, forties, thirties, and even the silent films as well. Yeah, the stuff where it starts even getting harder to find, you know. Exactly. <laughs> well, why is that the case? If uh, Netflix and he, Netflix and, and Hulu and and Amazon have a damn decent collection of silent films, it's, it's actually kind of surprising. Oh, it's silent films. I was going to say I was trying to find a uh, I was trying to find a comprehensive collection of the stuff Werner Herzog had done. That is that is that insanely is, hard. It's very very. Difficult, and that's because he's a true independent. That, and yeah. you have you build in the era of copyrights and licensing and things like that. Yeah. I mean, fuck all that shit. Like, let's go back before that was a problem. Like, and then <laughs> that's why silent films can be a little bit more accessible. I don't think you need to 
I think a common YouTube license allows you to post almost anything now that well, unless it's specifically well, licensed. Well, isn't after a hundred years stuff becomes public domain? Is that what? Yeah, we're I have starting no to idea move, starting to move forward yeah, with that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know if they're re-upping it or anything like that, but you know, but some like of them... I said, but then there's also the the fact that you know because of the uh, highly volatile nature of of film itself, a lot of this stuff did not survive. So, you know, the stuff that did survive is really important because we only have a very slight, very small library of, of, you know, what was going on from this time. It's funny, we haven't brought up yet, but, uh, you know, of the silent film era, you know, most people are at least vaguely aware of this film because the moon with the face has been very prevalent through Iconic. pop culture. Yeah, yeah, David, had you seen that before you saw this movie? Um, Are you aware of... I was vaguely aware of it. I had no idea where it was from. Right. That's what I mean. Yeah. So people probably are aware of it, but just don't know where it's from. Because uh, I know when we were growing up, the Smashing Pumpkins had there we go. Tonight Tonight, and that was a you know hit song, and that was basically an homage to Absolutely. this movie. Um, I guess there are some Japanese artists, and I, I don't remember the name, but someone told me that there's a very good, trippy Japanese artist that did a take on this film for a, a music video. I can believe that. <laughs> well, and no, and, and these ideas and, and the fun and exuberance, and the, I mean, like, just to me, they're just filled with energy. I mean, they're really, there's... Millier seems very thrilled to be doing what he's doing, yes. putting that movie together. It even comes across in his act, I mean, his acting is hyperbolic. Yes. So, I mean, I would like to maybe talk a little bit about some of the themes. Are we, can we start bullshitting about this movie now? I'd like to start bullshitting about it. Yeah, yeah let's absolutely. Bullshit. All right, let's bullshit about it. Yeah. So, you talked before about the nationalism going through this here. I think that there is a, a very good and consistent um, colonialism issue going on here as well. I kind of like this, that these guys are so, that first off, you get this, the idea of the elite moving forward with this. Yes, the, yes. It is the academics that are going off into this world I like, to well, actually, understand it. I like that they're not even academics, they're actual wizards, because only a wizard would be able to pull this off. Like, we can't, science, scientists wouldn't even be wizards able to pull Wizards for science, this off. Nicole. Yes. Well, it's a fine line. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Well, that, you know, just by keeping well, people I, ignorant, science can be, appear wizardry. I mean, for what it's worth, uh, for what it's worth, uh, I they did turn a bunch of telescopes into chairs. Because they're wizards. I don't think, yeah, that's not an astronomical <laughs> phenomenon. At least not that I'm aware of. Maybe we lost... Maybe we stopped figuring out how to do that after a while. Yeah, we got distracted by other things. Yeah, but no, the, like uh, the penicillin. The yeah, the, the through <laughs> line, the through line of exoticism in the alien race and <laughs> the exploring, yes. exploring unconquered territory, right. and then surreptitiously conquering it. And yes. and the uh, the statue at the end where his foot is on the moon, yes. like I have conquered this, yeah. fully conquered. Yes, yes, subjugated the moon. Also, because that, uh, that they didn't feel guilty about any of that shit at this no, point. No, they were very excited about yeah, subhuman. Them. I mean, you know, it's the classic themes are there. You know, to try to, to treat someone that way and not, and, you know, to have to lose no sleep. I mean, they fall asleep on the on the moon as well before yeah. they like realize what they're. Well, gonna yeah, because they're not worried. Like they're they're <laughs> obviously going to be the you know most advanced species that is up there. You know, yeah, that's yeah, the European confidence. You know. Yes, yeah, so that is definitely a prevalent theme in this film. Absolutely. It's also good, too, because, you know, as you... The way this movie tells its story, I think, is very, very fun and engaging. Like, the whole... The aesthetic of the of the movie, the play within a movie is very, very fun to see. Uh, but also, I think we have to kind of mention, too, where, you know, film kind of breaks off from this, how it begins to play around with what uh, kind of ideas are being within this. Now, I would like to maybe move the discussion forward a little bit by talking about, you know, if we were going to maybe go back later on in future podcasts to look at some of these uh, silent films, 
I'd like to put up a couple of films that I would like to to watch. Uh, one of them is The General by Buster Keaton. I think that it's a classic. Is, yeah. yeah, that's definitely a top okay. 100 movie. Um, and then the next one. I have one, not seen that one. Oh, really? Oh, that one's very fun. It's okay. got some of the most outrageous set pieces that are within that film as well. That okay. is like, I mean, it's almost impressive when they pull them off. And the way that it creates the tension of you know, how they're going to be able to do this is actually very, very well done. Because that's the thing with Buster Keaton is that you do feel like there is actually something being risked in a Buster Keaton film. And, and, there, and there there was. I mean, the, those stunts were not safe. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's what you get that sense watching this thing. and that's what, Were animals know, harmed in the creation of this film? I would hope so. And the, not the least of which was the animal named Buster Keaton. <laughs> that man is a man. That man he's a wild man. <laughs> he's a wild man. But that one, and also I think that we could get to maybe more subjective films. Um, I think uh, Haxan is uh, another silent film that is. What's the name? H a x a n Haxan. Okay. And that is that is some pretty good watching as well. That's much. It's also got it's it's That's horror a elements. Yeah, it's okay. it's got elements okay. of horror in it. It's yes. got elements of the of the supernatural. Uh, it is quite 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 good. And, of course, also, I think in the same realm, we could either do Hakusan or we could do Nosferatu, which is a very famous film. Yes, Nosferatu. And then... And, or uh, Caligari. Yeah, Cabinet is... of Dr. Caligari is the another kind of famous. And that takes a different tack entirely. That's uh, what they call German Expressionism. Yes, okay, yes. Good. But it also, it also uh, you know, it, it, it has the same feel where, you know, it has these very elaborate sets and, you know, real packed in. You know, in each shot, there's you know very elaborate sets that are you know very packed in, and the set itself is a large part of the storytelling. Much like a uh, trip to the moon is. I mean, these sets are super super elaborate, and they're really just as much part of the film as you know the the basic narrative of the the wizards figuring out that they can get to the moon and going and capturing their selenite, right. which I believe is what they called the moon people. But they also, <laughs> the fun thing too is that the, the tension and the storytelling develops from that as well, where you get this kind of departure from trip, trip to the moon where, you know, then it becomes, things get kind of based in, in a little bit of more, a little bit more in realism. So, you know, they start filming things out on the open and the, cause you know, light's a big problem as well. And Millier is kind of famous for kind of having his like light studio that he develops for this to channel natural lighting. And then, of course, they realize, well, like, well, we're not going to do this indoors when there's all sorts of natural lighting out in the world where we don't have to worry about these things also. But then, of course, you get the additional problem of the fact that the... There's weather. And the sun it is, like, moving. Yes. Yeah, like, the earth and... Oh, this, we're all moving, but at You can rates. tell that that is a constant problem they run into while filming Nosferatu is the fact that the sun is moving. And he's a vampire, so technically he's not supposed to be out during the day, so they have to do a lot of, like, negative... Yes, like, or the filters where they put yeah, it in. Yeah, like, negative like, shots where they, like, reverse the light so it looks like it's dark, even though you know they're filming during the day because that's the only way they'd be able to film this thing. So you get... <laughs> But the fun thing is, is that you you take it away from where you get the use of the outdoorness, the epicness that kind of comes from film after after Trip to the Moon. But then in the 1920s, they almost go back to the soundstage, right after they've kind of mastered the outside and they've mastered the the elements of storytelling. They go back into the uh, into the into the soundstage, into the studios, and then they can begin to create more as they have the ability, to, you know, for interior lighting, and that becomes where you can control the settings and then you know keep a film production moving forward. And the interesting thing, too, is that it's hard to say because with Trip to the Moon, the sets necessarily don't reflect. Once again, the sets tell the story, but there's no interiorness to it, right? There's no personal, per, there's no personalness to the film or to the sets themselves. By the time you get to German Expressionism, part of the set or part of the oddity of the sets themselves is designed to reflect almost the psychological nature of the story of the storytelling. And this all kind of develops these themes, themes moving for, from it. 
Well, see, which are merely, I, I think, hinted at overall in, in Trip to the Moon. Well, I guess maybe it's not it's not as as obvious, but like David was referring to the pomp and circumstance of like the scenes, and I feel like the the sets kind of reflect that and just how like you know big and detailed they are. And I mean yeah. they're they're clunky in some some spots, but you know. He, this was 1902. I mean, he was just kind of working this stuff out at this point. And if nothing else, they're aesthetically consistent. Yes. The moon, the moon, and the tops of the houses and all that all look like they were painted by the same guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, yeah. A consistent artistic division uh, vision is what we're kind of looking for here, and that's what really where the directors have to kind of imprint their mark. I mean, you have to, you know, coordinate. I mean, because filmmaking films is an undertaking, is an endeavor in and of itself, it and it takes a... the coordination of actors to the lowliest person who gets coffee to get everyone on board with a unified vision. And many people, you know, once again, why it is so hard to do this is not, it's not merely the act of telling a story that comes through this. It is the method and the way you tell the story that moves, that gives and the it's film its essence. coordinating all the parts. I mean, these are, these are projects of scale. Right. <laughs> but I think too that, you know, as we talk about elements of storytelling within silent films and then moving forward into film itself, you know, there has to be a sense that We've tended to de-emphasize storytelling, and I've, I've complained before about the idea of actions replacing motivation, actions replacing story, actions in movies replacing, uh, you know, the character development that actually should occur within most films. And I think it's unfortunate that, you know, looking back on on where film came from during this time period, action is the only way that they can tell a film, uh, tell a story, and it just kind of, I think, shows you the general lack of quality that is kind of developing in modern Hollywood as well, where. You know, I mean, are we almost reverting in a sense to where, you know, dialogue or emotionality or intimacy is actually being stripped away when at this point they hadn't even discovered how to be intimate? I mean, there's no excuse for modern filmmaking. They know these tricks now, right? They can go back and see how these things have developed and they almost, you know, acknowledgingly like do away with them to tell a single kind of story. Do you think those directors actually have seen those movies? Probably not. I mean, I I would be terribly curious how many how many films prior to... 1950 George Lucas has seen. Well, no, I don't think that... I think George Lucas takes... Believe it or not, I mean, I will defend... I mean, for what it's worth, I guess George Lucas is a little old for this example. J.J. Abrams. Yeah, I think that he especially... But the problem is, is that, you know, where you see the blockbuster kind of film industry, it is it is a business. I mean, these also were films that, you know, these this was a business yeah. as well. And it is kind of that... You know, experimentation or, or telling a story that people will connect to or that or challenging an audience. I mean, these things aren't, you know, these, this isn't going to pack people in the idea that you're going to challenge them in a film. I mean, many people like the idea of escapism. And it's not to say that all film has to be this hoity-toity, you know, rule-breaking kind of experimentation. But at the same time, it has to take risks in the way that it relays a story because it wants to communicate something that is not, that you're not expecting. And in, perhaps even in a manner that you're not expecting. And in that sense, it can still thrill, it can still surprise. And the thing is, is that people, I, the, the strange thing is, is that audiences don't seem to be demanding that. Like they kind of want this, the films to be told the same way or they want things to be just slightly innovative enough so that it can, you know, then they'll, you know, get off, so to speak, on that. Do you think, like, the makers are getting lazy because the audience have, have gotten lazy? I don't know if it's a supplier-demand problem. I mean, mm -hmm. I really think that, you know, that... that the global market, especially for blockbusters, has really, you know, devalued any kind of, like, character intimacy. And this is difficult because many people don't, you know, many Americans don't watch foreign films. Yeah. And many foreigners, when they watch them, they're watching foreign films. And so this is kind of, you know, devolved into kind of a universalism where, you know, we're not, we're, it's very difficult to convey that kind of intimacy when you leave out cultural norms or you leave out something that might be very specifically 
specifically targeted to one group or audience. So, for example, I, I brought up L'Amour, Love, yeah. which is a French film in a previous podcast. I mean, that thing has, I mean, to me, that has some some universal elements that are beyond the fact that this is taking place. And yet, you know, you won't you won't see a group of teenagers going to see that movie because it's something so far outside of their experiment, experience. And that's what's unfortunate. I'm not trying to bag on audiences in general here, but there is just, there's just a... a, a a ubiquitous nature of storytelling that I think we're linking onto, and it is kind of divulging film into kind of lowest common denominator element. And that's just unfortunate because it seems now the barrier to making films has never been lower. I mean, with digital technology, I mean, for God's sakes, you don't even need film to make a fucking film anymore. Like when Nicole and I were, were taking film classes. Oh, like, yeah, you still needed film. That's why indie films were on black and white, because yeah. it was cheaper to shoot. It was like $40,000 a weekend to shoot a film. Like now you can you could shoot a whole film on your on your phone or with a digital camera for less than that. I mean, I guess I was going to say, talking of lowest common denominator, though, in the way that the bar is that low, I mean, yes, at the highest echelon, films are appealing to the lowest common denominator, but there is YouTube. I, I was talking with Dylan a little while ago about how um, how there is, in, in a world where, and this ties into a handful of conversations we've had, where it's very hard to be the best at what you do, so the way to cope with that in an emotional capacity is to at least affect, if not truly believe that you're not even trying. And YouTube videos do tend to have this feel of being campy, which even if they could surpass them because people are afraid to put that much out there, to have that much skin in the game, they just eschew that whole aesthetic. I think there are absolutely people who are trying to break the mold and do something that is actually affective but you're not seeing it at the top because Marvel drowns out everyone below them. Right. I mean, at least at the level we're talking about. If we're talking about film from the 20s compared to film from the 10s, the, the, the modern time, <laughs> yeah. um, coming full circle, um, those films do exist. I mean, we've talked about Birdman and Spring Breakers. I think both of those do an okay job. Right. of pulling that off. It's just they're not every film and not everybody is watching them. And as we alluded to in both of those podcasts, most people are not seeing those films more than once because if the film is not just candy, <laughs> no one wants to watch it more than once because we have not been trained to watch movies more than one time. That thing, that idea just doesn't exist in modern culture, which is a shame. Okay. Well, I uh, back. I want to discuss maybe your earlier point as well about unlike uh, uh, unlike a trip to the moon, which you can watch four times in one sitting because it's only twelve minutes long. Well, it's it's YouTube length. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's very much YouTube. It's uh, the, this movie actually reminded me quite a bit of the Lost Skeleton of Cadavra, which um, while not quite of the same ilk. <laughs> as a trip to the moon feels like the precursor to YouTube where it feels like someone got hold of a camera and just got a bunch of their friends together and made a dumbass movie. Have either of you seen that movie? I have not no. seen that. Uh, but it sounds exciting. Um, we should watch that sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Cause Add I, it to I, the list. Well, but the thing I wanted to get to about, I hate to go back to a point now, but that's fine. We talk about YouTube, the, uh, the popularity of YouTube and the idea that people don't want to be seen as trying which is that trying somehow puts up a barrier between you yourself, your genuine self, and what you're communicating, and then what you're actually trying to get across as, as your point. And those two things have to be kind of seamless in a lot of people's eyes. So, you know, when you watch YouTube videos, there are, I was, I'm really surprised about the, you know, what, what and how so many videos are popular on YouTube. So when I go to YouTube, 
always like to not log in and see what YouTube is suggesting to me. And okay. it's like, oh, that's the best. Yeah. So you're getting, you know, this usual mixture of like, you know, corporate, corporatized media that's on YouTube, which is very, very big. And then you also get these odd videos of, you know, people sitting in front of their, their you know, computers uh, just talking about an issue. And it can be anything from, you know, a transgender person's struggle about how they're going through the process uh, of, you know, becoming who they are. And, or it can be someone, you know, reviewing a film. And well, people, that, do tutori- people will do tutorials on just about anything. Yeah. Like Case in point. Anything. But the strange thing is, is that there's... The, the method of how you relay the information becomes lost in the idea that you want to affect a sense of genuineness with what you're putting forward. And people, once again, trying to trying to put effort or time or thought or innova- innovation into how you're relaying, to, relaying, many people would look at that as being like, like sterilizing your message. Like, why don't you just get to the point? Or why, are, you know, they'll, they'll almost discount it because you try to put a barrier between you just communicating your idea and being quote-unquote genuine. Quantizing it. Yeah. So I don't understand why, I mean, is this why now there is, you know, there is communicating through media and then there are films where we don't really have to communicate. It's just, you know, it is it is sugar. It is popcorn. It is what it is. And I think we're, I, think, I mean, I think we're losing something to a certain extent about those as well because... Do we get too heavy a dose of reality of the internet and then we don't need movies for that? That's unfortunate because I think that... You know, there, I think part of what film can can provide is a sense of truth through storytelling, a truth through the fact that it can be evoked from from something greater than the idea that it is just someone genuine who has lived through this. Because Nicole and I always, have always joked the idea that people who need the tagline before a movie based on a true story, that they can then, like, suspend their disbelief and say, okay, I'll go with this now, all right? I will, like, believe this, What's you know, I'll give this movie more credo now that it's been based on a true story. Because that doesn't matter. Like, if it was or if it wasn't, it doesn't. I mean, how could how could a, how could a movie convey what actually happened in any sort of real sense? We know it's a lie, but the fact that it's you know that that tagline alone gives people, a, oh yeah, that was based on a true story. That was a great film. Well, that's funny because so we were watching. Well, we dis- discussed a documentary earlier today, and uh, one of the things about that documentary, The Seven Five, is the director filmed all the interviews in that movie three times, and he used the best version of it, the one that came across like the best for the film. So even when you're watching, you know, stuff that's quote unquote non-fiction, you still have a director that has a bunch of content and he is choosing which content he wants to put together to create this story. So like based on a true story doesn't mean anything like documentaries, you know, they're always quote-unquote based on a true story, but there's still artistic license in there and how that story gets, you know, divulged to you. And he can he can withhold stuff, he can add stuff, he can, you know, which Herzog likes to do, he can change the order of events right. to make it more, you know, more powerful. To tell the story. To, to, to tell the story. So, I mean, you're you're always, there. there's always, like, the storytelling aspect, even when it's it based on a true story. It's not It's not true what actually happened. I mean, yeah. my, my hang-up with based on a true story, I mean, I, I do get that little bit of, I get that ping at the beginning when I see that. I, I understand the feeling that people get when they see that, where y- you can you can feel slightly more comfortable with what's unfolding because there is something to back it up. Like I, I try to like fight what? it. No, like no, 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 what? no, no, no. Like, that's the thing. <laughs> it's it's a completely emotional thing. Like I understand that, and I understand that from a semantic level, because I don't necessarily I don't have a problem with someone saying that this is based on something that is true. 
I have a problem with the term true story because true story is almost oxymoronic. By telling a story, you are then sewing the truth into a narrative. Like, yeah. the truth doesn't have a narrative. That's not how it works. So the phrase itself is already internally inconsistent. But it's such a load of shit that, like, that, like, that, that pings with people. I mean, the most honest thing you could do at the beginning of a movie is tell people, I'm going to be lying to you to tell a story. And that's the most truthful thing you'll fucking see in that movie. I poured my heart into creating this story for you. Yeah. I mean, the biggest <laughs> lie someone, you can tell someone is like, I'm trying to be genuine in communicating this to you. It's it's such shit. They're, they're well, like a YouTube video of someone putting forward. I mean, this is done in multiple takes. They you know, they sit there and they think and they want to put this forward. It's all an act. I mean, it is all an act. And yet that there is somehow some sort of, cre- like, credence that is given to when people can feel like, oh, this is someone, tr- you know, being genuine. Like, they're, like, this isn't an attempt to be genuine. And that's what's strange is that it's all an attempt to be something or yeah. to have an effect of something. And yet that, I don't understand... I just feel like nobody else gets the joke. <laughs> like, that's the problem. I mean, like, uh, again, for, for what it's worth, my favorite example of based on a true story is at the front of the Dead Milkman song, The Secret of Life. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, the good, first yes. line of which is, I saw a cigar-shaped flying ship that yeah. landed outside my lawn. Based like, on a true yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I agree with you, but it's just, I I understand where people come from because it's, you want to get from the point where you have experienced whatever someone put out to the message as rapidly as possible. And the easiest way to do that is to have the confidence of the author that they're going to tell it to you exactly the way it is. Right. With as few filters as possible. And th- I see the appeal of that. It's a very, very convenient way to make something seem more valuable than it may actually be at first blush. But then... You know, there's a whole element of storytelling that you're leaving behind when you do that. It's just, oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's just strange that this come this somehow adds some sort of credibility that oh, someone went went through this like some like somehow or, you know that uh, that so for example, I haven't seen Steve Jobs yet, the movie Steve Jobs, but Aaron Sorkin kind of takes on these you know stylized approaches to true stories and the way he's trying to convey. And his point isn't to relay an honest storytelling. In fact, we know it's not an honest storytelling, <laughs> but it's like, it's Facebook and they're calling it Facebook. It must be true. There's an element of truth to this. And then they, you know, I mean, it's all part of myth-making. It's all part of the lore of what we tell ourselves and how we communicate ideas, absolutely. But it's, like I said, it's, it just seems to be more dishonest to say based on a true story Rather than saying, you know, I'm going to relay a story to you in an entertaining and engaging way, and I'd like you to think about the ideas that I'm presenting to you. I mean, why can't we just? Uh, that's what every movie begins with. That's what the black screen at the beginning of the movie tells you. <laughs> okay, I think I think actually I, I think I just stumbled into what you where this where this might be where this might be leading. Based on a true story, is the director or screenwriter saying, "Don't worry, you won't be an idiot for caring about this." But why? Like, well, because they talked about fantasy and Lord of the Rings or, you know, like Avengers. Like, is this, I mean, are there two different ways to engage with a story? One that we know is fiction and then one that we think is based on a true story? I mean, are there two different ways that people can connect to that? Yeah, I think so. That just is absurd because it's, we okay, Saving Private Ryan, right? The ultimate piece of Americana, <laughs> pe- you know, talk, people talk about a film that means something. <laughs> they talk about, people like connect with Saving Private Ryan because, oh, this actually happened. It didn't fucking happen that way. Like, we know it didn't happen that way. It's a lie that is telling the truth. But, and I don't fault but then it, it works for re- that. But it works in reverse, too. Like, uh, Oliver Stone did The Doors, okay? Was there a band called The Doors? Yes. Yes. And that's where 
basically the similarities with the <laughs> yeah. movie stop, but it's an excellent movie. It's very engaging. Wonderful Val Kilmer performance. Um, it's, like I said, it's based on the fact that, yes, there was a band called The Doors. Well, and it's, <laughs> but it's, just, it's just strange that that barrier gets held up when, when we... we uh, I can't help but get over this sense that there is something odd with our culture and this reliance on what is genuine to the idea that it's, it's getting in the way of you actually engaging with it because in a weird sense, it gives so much trust over to, you know, the people who are telling the story. When you are given, you are going to abandon critical thought and you're going to abandon the assessment of the ideas. You're going to trustingly take on what is being presented to you in a sense and saying, oh, this is based on a true story. Well, then I'll, t I'll just believe everything the way they tell me to believe it because it's based on a true story and I have no kind of free will or I have no kind of critical thought to kind of look into these things. And that's why people don't rewatch them over and over again because I got the main idea the first time. Because yep. it was based on a true story. It makes that slightly easier to do. It takes, it, it, again, it puts the, uh, or it doesn't put a wall, it removes a wall because you don't have to interpret what the movie is telling you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And people don't like interpreting things. That's why they don't watch movies twice. Yeah, it's a pain in the and ass. And the other thing is, you know, film, even documentaries, it's all storytelling. Like, if you want the, the boring truth, like, that's journalism. Right. You know, that's not... That's not movie making. Well, it's not <laughs> even, I mean, journalists would probably be offended by even that. I mean, journalists are supposed to take the truth and make it as interesting as possible. I mean, they're supposed, that's, there is an element of storytelling even to that. But when you are, when you are presented with the idea of this being the truth, and granted, in much the same way that spring break is a meaningless term that is supposed to just be away from where you are in some idea, I think the way that it's people use. conceptual place. Yeah. The yeah. truth is exactly the same way. It's an extremely lazy approximation of what you want to know. People want to know the facts, the truth, etc. And that's people use phrases like that all the time. At the end of the day is a very popular <laughs> phrase because it's the end of the discussion. Whatever you're about to say after at the end of the day is all you need to know. And uh, that's, that's a convenience that very few people will pass up. It's just odd that, you know, in, where you have an American culture, especially, and we're going to kind of, you know, kind of bring it home a little bit here, I guess, which is that you have an American culture that really, where we have a culture that prides themselves on being, you know, independent, you know, people, you know, people who, who I'll make it up for myself. But yet at the same time, you know, want this kind of this entertainment spoon fed to them. I mean, we, we all want to buy in on the cultural lie. We all want to buy in on the cultural story that the way these things are presented to you us. You don't want the doubt, though. You don't want to seem as though you're pussyfooting it. Right. Assertion is just as important as independence, and in fact, the two terms tend to get joined at the hip. But it's but it's strange that we're having this kind of cultural tyranny where you know you can't. You, it becomes then that anyone who interprets a movie or who looks at a movie in a different light, you know, they're they're traitors to the cause, right? They're traitors to the truth, right? You can't you can't enjoy Saving Private Ryan, like. The idea that it could be a raucous time in war is—I mean, we win for fuck's sake. I mean, let's let's you know let's 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 have some fun with this thing. I mean, we're killing Nazis. That's the only thing you're allowed to be enjoying in film is when you're killing Nazis. And at the same time, there is a kind of raucousness in which the energy and and emotional and dramatic effect of what you're watching. And I'll take that you know I'll I'll take the hit on this by you know saying that you know this movie that is so hallowed in people's minds that is you know you are you are supposed to act a certain way. When watching this film, I mean, it doesn't excuse the fact that it is kind of a middling war film. I mean, the, beyond the first, 
beyond the first initial scene, which is great, the storming of Normandy Beach in that film is great, great sequence. One of the all-time best war scenes in film history. But after that... Yeah, I even I had a film teacher go as far as saying, he goes, if if Private Ryan was black, nobody would have even seen this nobody movie. Nobody would have given a shit. Yeah, nobody would have cared. <laughs> no one would have been looking for him. Yeah, yeah even if it was tr- true. Based on a true story, it would have actually devalued it in people's eyes. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> there there goes your true story bullshit theory. Like, nobody cares unless it's the right person's true story. <laughs> but but then it also, too, you know, it also, I think, you know, conveys an idea of, of war that, it doesn't necessarily get the whole point of cross. And this is, this is once again kind of the odd thing too, which is that if you break down the barrier of responsibility that you're interpreting what a true story is, like Journey to the Moon, like Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know, like a war film, right? There is a point and an effect of it that can be more visceral if you approach everything from the fact that you know it's a lie and being told to you. You know, you can you can give in to that and be okay with it rather than giving in to the one way you're supposed to feel about this kind of a film. In which case, um, uh, what's the Kubrick World War One film? Oh, Paths of Glory. Yeah, Paths of Glory. When that scene, when he's walking down the trench, oh, and it's just oh, person yes. after person after person after person after person, just the big wide angle waiting. shot. Yeah, you're waiting, and you're just yes. seeing these fucking people on the assembly line to the fucking death factory. Like, man, that has a a a sense and a feel of what war was, and there's no fighting, and you get this real harrowing emotional reaction to it. And that's more true than anything in Saving Private Ryan to a certain extent. It, it relays that idea in such a poignant manner, but it didn't need that idea that this was based on a true story to have that. And you don't need it. You just don't need it. You give the credence to itself and then realize or think back upon it whether or not you felt that was justified in the place it took you. But no, you give up all that when you, you know, get that emotional pain. Oh, based on a true story. Well, I'll give in this time. <laughs> We should start putting that in front of all movies, you know, like uh, Prometheus. I wish they wouldn't put it in front of any movie, even if it is based on something. I don't even want to know because you're telling – I'm watching a movie that you created. As far as I'm concerned, this is a story you're telling. Like, I'm not – like, I'm not – going to get, you know, duped into thinking that what I'm watching is accurate. Well, but that's why I keep coming back to Uh what what compels people – in that phrase, what is actually comforting about it being a true story? Is it is it the fact that the message they can take away from this movie, the way that they're supposed to feel about it, is more genuine, that they aren't having to manufacture it from whole cloth? Like, is it actually laziness or is it a or is that comfort more real where you you would feel slightly embarrassed to feel improperly about a film? If you had to take some interpretive license with it, like because I mean, granted, I I. As I suggested, I I know what the allure of the based on a true story thing is, but I don't know why I have that. Okay, yeah, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't. I don't. Sociologically, I, I'm yeah. not sure why that is so powerful. I mean, for people, people people say I think people say no, man, this really happened, <laughs> and yeah. they say that like it's a bad like of it honor. matters. <laughs> yeah, and that's and I understand. Like I understand. I don't do it because it makes me feel kind of icky. But I don't like. <laughs> I almost do. I. I almost catch myself doing it sometimes, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure why, because as a storyteller, that doesn't. I. It's no. It has no bearing on me. It'd be one thing if it happened to me. Yeah. Like, and maybe actually, you know what? Maybe that's where it comes from. Is that it is in an attempt to absorb whatever is being told to you to become to slightly in that little way become who you have experienced. It makes it that much easier to put that on you, the basking and reflected glory sort of part of the team thing. And granted, as far as people or we could have like, around this table, not a whole lot. I mean, actually, no, I guess, Ryan, you've 
do you have any particular teams in team sports you care about, or do you just like team sports? I like team sports in general, and the the teams that I have, you know, a kind of established history with, I do just tend to follow more than other teams. But you know, I've got I've got two sides to like team sports side. I've got you know teams that I've traditionally am, am familiar with that, that you know I've got his, that I have a history with. But then also I look for excellence in t- in team sports and the sports I enjoy, regardless of who I'm pulling for. So, you know, in that sense, you know, there is a kind of previous connection that I have to the thing. But then also there's an appreciation of the way in which the elements of the of what I'm watching or what I'm viewing can be perfected. And in com- in competitive sports, I mean, there are you know talent levels and 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 ways that you can connect with that. But it's it's both but for it's, me. I engage you, in both yeah, ways. You don't have that that ge- geographical loyalty like you know like USA USA. No, like, yeah, I no. know USA people usually aren't that loyal, but people in smaller <laughs> countries that don't win all the time are very loyal to their geographical location right. of the, their team. Yeah, it just makes me wonder if Even that... though the team players change, which is why I don't understand that concept, because I like individual sports, I like individual people for their merits, I don't even care what country they come from. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> that's, that's part of the attitude, I think, that, it, uh, that has to tie into it somewhere, because that's, that's, again, the only way that you could see the truth in a true story mattering is if you become the vessel of that story... It makes it that much easier if you know the story is true that you can fall back on the truth as opposed to whatever interpretive or style maybe, or you maybe it's are like absorbing it, like it's from an it. empathetic plea. Like it makes it helps people like empathize. With yeah, exactly. The characters, because it knowing gives you a, that oh somebody somebody actually went through this. Yeah, it gives you a common ground. Yeah, like that's and that somewhere along the lines this makes proximate sense. I'm just not sure exactly where it is. Well, no, but look at the way, look at the way, like, people are treating Ben Carson now. Politics. I, I, Ooh, edgy, I don't. Edgy, okay. Yeah, yeah. But the way that people connect with Ben Carson is that, you know, he tells this, this story about himself that gets relayed in a sense that it is meaningful because it is true. And the stories he tells about his transformation from being this, you know, person who was violent or who was didn't have direction in his life to, you know, praying to Jebus in a bathroom and suddenly he is like transformed into this goodly, you know, godly person. Well, the thing is, is that what we now find out about him as we investigate these things is that he's an embellisher. He's not a liar. He's, I mean, yeah, he's a liar. Based on a true story. Yes, yes, exactly. He's based on a true story. It didn't really happen the way he presents it 25 years after the fact. He's told the story over and over again. And I'm sure as every person in this pod, listening to this podcast or everyone standing around this table, if you've told the same story over and over in your youth, you've altered some of the details because you know it, you know, put, putting things out of order might make that punchline just a little bit more weightier might emphasize your point just a little bit more. Or fuck, going back to the Brian Williams thing, I'm fully willing to believe that he believes his version of events because every time you tell a story, neurologically speaking, you refer back to the last time you told it, not the original event. So it's very possible that Ben Carson simply does not know anymore. It, it's, who he it, was. It's true to him. Yeah. And yeah. as such, he presents it as truth to the rest of the world. And those ty- those two things are not the same thing. And in this sense, in this sense, when 86% of the people feel him, feel that he is truthful because he relays personal details that are not flattering to him. And then he has a redemption story based on that. People feel that, oh, he's this is based on a true story. Yeah, it's based. But everything that has come after that has been an Did embellishment. Get, yes, there a s- is a person named Ben Carson. Yes, there is. And the rest of it is fucking <laughs> fiction. As false as the mask that he puts on, the same mask that we all put on. 
and then re and continue to put on. And, and as we put it on every day and re reflect back and look at previous iterations and masks and stories we've told, it changes over time. And we can't excuse ourselves from the fact that just because we're being relayed something does not mean that we it absolves us of being critical of what we're being told. And I get that we want movies to be, you know, candy entertainment. I love candy entertainment movies as well. But at the same time, it doesn't absolve us from looking and trying to understand something from different ways. It doesn't, it, it has to, in a sense, appeal to us in a larger sense to where we both reflect on what we've seen and not just in a reflection in the sense that, well, that was impactful. And I'm glad that I felt the way they told me to feel about that. And I was, I'm going to go there with them to feel this because that was what they felt was good for me. You're explaining a Steven Spielberg film right now. Well, it's Saving Private Ryan is the best kind of fucking it's a patriotic very good example yeah of the it. patriotic sentiment that is once again very very good to see but ultimately doesn't question the very thing it portrays and that's the real problem that it over, that we have with it overall and i mean i'll pop in on the 4th of july to fuck yeah america i mean I, I get that that that's in there and i enjoy that film in fact when you know i enjoyed it a little too much i was fucking in, smiling and laughing and enjoying the film in a sense that it was the kind of raucousness that was going through it this it does that 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 opening sequence really does have a it's harrowing in all the and the but it's it's like cinematically it's good like it's exciting from a cinematic standpoint because it is executed like so well like even though what's going on is really horrible like i was able to really kind of get into just like the sheer like energy of like the whole it's it, like it's 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 big, you know, but the rest of the movie kind of just waddles off into finding Matt Damon, which isn't that important at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> but I just it is now Matt Damon has proven to be the new Tom Hanks as far as people wanting him to succeed. Yeah, so. his new okay. movie is Saving the Astronaut Stranded on Mars. So he's right, you know, yeah. tw tw 16 years later. Cast away on Mars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, Saving Private Astronaut on Mars. Is yes. Where we're at now. Yeah, yeah, because... And the whole world had to pull together to get his dumb ass off Mars in that movie. I guess so. I haven't seen it yet. Have you seen I, it yet? I uh, listened to the audiobook two times. Whoa. It's an excellent audiobook. Based I'm a, on a true story? Who cares? Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, you know. Will be based on a true story. I, uh, based on a true story. I don't know if it would be a very interesting book to read, but the audiobook version of it is really good. Very well recorded, very well read, very engaging. Awesome. But that. Uh, all of this talk of, I mean, I, I guess I brought up Tom Hanks, if we're going to talk about, <laughs> but if we're going to talk about someone. Tom Hank, okay, Tom Hanks, who actually did a complete remake of Trip to the Moon in like a little film project that's in the documentary. He, they went and built the soundstage. <laughs> he was dressed up as Professor. McGillicuddy, I don't know. What, that name yet. was long and complicated and I, I'm not going to try and pronounce it, but. Um, yes, yeah, so he uh, he's definitely watched films from before his time. It, it, the, <laughs> the relatability of Tom Hanks, I mean, it, it makes me wonder once again in my in my version of trying to understand what based on a true story gives people warm, warm fuzzies for. Is this a competition between people and ideas? Wanting Tom Hanks or Matt Damon to succeed doesn't have to do with the motifs of the movie. It's inherently personal. That's right. that's why they hire people like Tom Hanks because that's, people like him. Yeah, I mean that's. And does that end up foiling? <laughs> does that end up foiling attempts to make the movie more about the ideas of the movie? I mean, does Castaway or whatever the airport movie or some other th actually? Yeah, I guess Saving Private Ryan, right? Yeah, he was. Yeah, in he's that. in that movie Forrest too. Gump. I mean, does that does that end up compromising the ability for the movie to be about ideas? Because 
it is embroiled with a desire to see those characters through. I mean, I've run into this in a story before. It was actually one of my it was one of my predominant epiphanies when I started to become a furry was that there's a comic called House Pets by a guy named Rick Griffin. He's a great artist, not a great storyteller. He's gotten better over time. Uh, he does good work now. But when I was reading it, it was a little rough. I'm normally super duper critical of story arcs because I absolutely love a well-executed story arc, but don't care about characters at all. Mm-hmm. Right up until House Pets. And there was a really dopey um, storyline at one point where two, two of the pets were going to get married and there was a possibility that that would be foiled. And I actually felt like I was rooting for the characters in a way that I absolutely had never related to any character, as far as I could tell, ever. Okay. Um, which says more about me than anything else. <laughs> but, there's, but I think there's a strand in there that is important where the ideas that were floating underneath this arc, because this arc is about a human that is transformed into a dog who falls in love with another dog. And there's a lot of ideas going on there, none of which mattered because I just wanted King to get married. Like, that's what I wanted. And that eschewed all of the rest. Like, it didn't matter whether the story even made sense at that point. I just wanted him to succeed. And Saving Private Ryan is sort of the same. It would fall into the same realm, I think, where it doesn't matter what they have to do. They will move heaven and earth to rescue this one son because he's Matt Damon. Yes. I, like, that's got to be tied into this somehow. Well, I mean, in that case, I think you know, the story itself doesn't get in the way of what our desire to see the character succeed. That doesn't, isn't removed by the story. Where I mean, where you once again, you'd get a story but, that would But the story that. flattens as a result. Yes, absolutely. Because, because the mission of the story is now person-focused as opposed to idea-focused. I mean, it's it, it's the main conveyance of the of the plot and the and the story as well. But it certainly doesn't absolve the filmmaker from having any less responsibility and just or just executing point A to point B in the story as well. And it is, I think, perhaps where you know you get the you know blockbusterization of these things to where you can't necessarily have any any real complicated overall motivation for these kinds of characters. I mean, you know, there is well, there you is wouldn't you wouldn't want to jeopardize people wanting them to succeed. Right. Well, no, and you wouldn't... Hang on. <laughs> you don't want him to accidentally be a Soviet sympathizer in Save Private Ryan because that might alloy your desire to see him survive. Right. And that would weaken, that would weaken the story. Well, no, but it would... But Despite the, complicating it in a potentially interesting way. Yeah. Well, no, but, <laughs> but, but also is... But, but the whole point of it too is that you know we're you we are in 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 we're engendered we are imprinted upon by the experiences that we see within films and most of them are to get the giddy little thrills that we all love so much i mean this is why you know this is why uh, horror movies are always profitable because you'll always have just a subset of people who will see four of those things every year to be scared to enjoy that feeling that comes from that and you know much of that then we can have you know, a nature or a sense of what we're seeing as being subversive in the way that it tells a story. But, you know, in when what film can convey, I think that if we wanted to break down Saving Private Ryan into two things, I think it would be this idea that, A, you know, we're going to relay a in a very realistic sense a very important event in American history, one that we should, in fact, venerate in our history. I don't disagree with that. But the next thing is, is that, well, what the hell else are we going to build on top of this experience? Because the initial scene, the most famous scene of that movie occurs... 90 seconds into the film where we have no other motivation, right? We have, I mean, this is just pure 
war experience where we have no connection to the characters until this thing is unfolding. Yeah, there's no story us. at that point. No, the story yeah. is the invasion, and you are th- thrust into this world and experience it. And that's why it's so visceral in the sense that that, that experience becomes so famous because we see it as if all of these were strangers to us. We see it as if it, if it, there was no compunction that it was based on a true story. You know this is trying to relay an event to you in, in a meaningful manner. And that's why the rest of the film seems like such an emotional letdown. Because where do you go from there? Well, now you build up story. Now you build up conflict. Now you build up all the elements that come from this. And all the action that occurs after it is attached to the characters that the story is intending to relay to you, right? The the conflict within the group, how why sacrifice so many people to save one person, all of these things kind of come through it, but essentially muddle the whole experience of what this thing is trying to convey to you. And in the weird sense, in the weird sense, Saving Private Ryan should have ended after that first initial scene. It should have only been 28 minutes long because the way that it was trying to relay that truth to you was only in the sense that it was so divorced from the false elements of how it's based on a true story. I mean, the biggest thing that gets into relaying a true story to you is the detached experience of any person other than a guy I recognize as not Forrest Gump this time. <laughs> right? The idea that, 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 that we follow him through this very, very harrowing event, that's the only point in that film that is essentially truthful. The rest of it, I mean, and it, to a certain extent as well, if memory serves, there's also a kind of, you know, hokey, you know, flag-waving beginning that also opens up with it as well, which, all right, sets some context. But apart from that, the initial opening to that film is is brilliant in the way that it conveys that sense of truth. It lies to tell the truth, David. And everything that comes after that is just... Didn't lie to me. Oh, well, I, it, it lies... I mean, it, it's based on true story. It lied to a lot of people. And a lot of people felt that what I'm, I, I will give in to this because it is true. And in the end, they get their little flag-waving moment at the end. But to me, why that is so great and why it might be Spiel, some of Spielberg's best moments in, in filmmaking is because he puts that at the beginning in, in its most pure sense. When there is no other character, there's no way to build a connection to someone other than the, you know, flag-waving sentiments we all bring to an important shared cultural event. Ryan, Tom Hanks would not lie to me. <laughs> Spielberg might. Through his use of Tom Hanks, he lied to you. No, no, Tom Hanks wouldn't stand for that. No. Well, you, Spielberg's always lying to you. Yeah, he's always lying, man. That's why I have to rely on Tom Hanks. No, he sent someone to tell you the truth in order to lie to you in a wider sense. I mean, that's the problem. I don't think you know Tom Hanks like I know Tom okay, Hanks. Okay, so clearly. So, so back to the movie at hand. We were talking about Trip to the Moon. So this is this is not based on a true story. It does, you know, it is science fiction that does become somewhat science truth because we <laughs> did actually make it to the moon. Will be based on a true story. <laughs> yes, it will be based on a true story. And, uh, you know, the fact that it has a story is what makes it so revolutionary for its time. Yeah. And Absolutely. then we ruined it. Yes. Over the subsequent generations. I think so. But I think we can get it back. I really do. So if you haven't seen it, watch it. It's fun. It's exciting. It looks cool. It's on Amazon Prime, YouTube, and literally and everywhere there's, else for free. there's lots of versions of it. So yeah. if you think the music is terrible in one, try a different one. You know, different people have different interpretations. Or yeah, make your own music for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, make your own video. Yeah. I mean, as far as faking being erudite, it's the easiest possible avenue for that. <laughs> it takes 12 minutes and you can go, oh, well, I've seen the first film. Like, that's that's got, a good conversation ender. Yeah, you got film you got film cred after that. Film yeah. street cred. You have more than Dan Reichert anyway. That man made it through film studies, has not seen... A single movie from before he was born? He's Basically. like, what's The Godfather? Yeah. yeah. No, no, he hasn't seen The Godfather. He Naturally. hasn't seen... Um, I just yeah, there's a whole fucking list of them. Okay, okay. Me and Peter Griffith agree on one thing: The Godfather. Eh. And that's gonna do it. Let's see it. 
for well, that's a, I'll, this I'll, I'll yell at you for another podcast moving forward. Yeah, you can one. you can move forward on that yeah. one. Yeah, I think we can do The Godfather at some point. Nicole. Yes. Closing thoughts. This was really fun to go back and watch again. <laughs> I had not seen this since uh, I was probably in a film class. And uh, it was fun taking a look at it. I was really just impressed on, you know, how how much, how many film elements, you know, are in there that, that have really, like, moved forward and, and changed the way that, that film has uh, has developed over the years. And uh, I'm, I'm glad we picked this one. I think it was a fun little uh, trip down uh, movie history lane. <laughs> Ryan? It's a jaunty experience of a film, I'll tell you that much. And I think it's also, once again, a way to connect with, for people who enjoy film, I think it's always important to go back and look at some of these films and the you know, the, the, the rascaliness that kind of runs through this thing, the fact that he, you know, wants to trick you, that he has this element of theatricality that runs through this, and to see it in a very, very, you know, in a way in which the experimentation and not knowing what what they were doing was a very real problem they had to solve, I think is very, very enlightening and in, 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 a, in, a, in not a catchy or hokey way. I think it's inspiring to kind of see, you know, what they were able to do when there were no rules and they were creating the rules as they went along. And I think that whenever we can kind of pinpoint these areas of film history to kind of see where these revolutions take place, I think is ultimately beneficial to our better understanding of of recognizing something unique when we see it and being able to understand and appreciate where we have come from up until this point. I liked it. And with that, we're going to sign off. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, our next podcast will probably be on Undertale because Ryan will probably have finished it by then. Uh, other than that, um, I don't know. I'm redoing my doorbell. I have no idea if that project's going to come to fruition or not. It requires Arduino interfacing with other things and i have no experience with that whatsoever but that's never ever stopped me in the past it's like so. a video i uh, hope so excellent yeah filmed on the only video camera i've ever needed unlike these fucking microphones on location yeah all right i'm gonna stop pretending to end this and end this uh thanks everybody signing off